This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Dear Lord, you are the author of wisdom. We pray again for the presence of the Holy Spirit to be here. Lord, you prayed that, uh, or you, you prayed for us that we who believe through the things that the apostles said would be uh, redeemed. You also prayed that the Spirit would come, and He did, and that He would bring to remembrance things that we've studied before, that you've shown us. Do that now, Lord. Help us to better understand this beautiful gift of prayer, and I pray that we're different in a positive way as a result of our time now this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're just going to try and take, I say this, but it's hard to know, but we're going to try and take just uh, 20 minutes, half an hour, and just deal with a few questions on the subject of prayer. And there's a gentleman at the microphone right now. Could you help me understand, you had mentioned uh, intercessory prayer with Daniel and Isaiah of forgiving us and our people of their sins. So is it possible for other people to ask for my sins to be forgiven, or is that something one-on-one between me and God? Or is this intercessory prayer applicable for everyone? Good question. Can I pray that God will forgive you if you're not praying that God forgives you? Why did Jesus say, Father, lay not this sin to their charge? When Stephen was being stoned, no, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Stephen prayed, lay not this sin to their charge. Daniel and many others through the Bible have prayed for mercy on God's people corporately. I think we can pray that God extends mercy to other people, that when you pray for your children to be saved uh, and you pray for mercy for them, I think you're praying that God providentially will intercede in their lives and do things for others that otherwise may not happen because someone is praying for them. I've heard stories of where just one person, like a mother, may focus her prayers on her husband and for 20 years, finally those prayers are answered. And so they're compounded. Um, So I believe in intercessory prayer. I think when you pray corporately for others, you're actually asking God to extend longer mercy to them. And um, God does hear those prayers. Forgiveness, yeah, ultimately, God, we must receive that forgiveness. You can't get baptized for the dead like the Mormons do. Sorry. Um, we had said earlier that uh, one shouldn't be praying like the Pharisees on the street corner to be seen. And I was wondering, is there a, a good difference to being like when you pray as an example for others? And you're purposely being seen, but you're doing it in a a good spirit or heart in order to be a good example, say like a family member. That's a good question. Um, While you don't want to pray, Jesus said, do not pray for the purpose of being a personal spectacle that was attracting glory. The scribes and the Pharisees, when they prayed, they wanted to impress other people with their holiness, and that offended Jesus. But it's not wrong if I go to a restaurant, and I'm with my family, we're in a public restaurant, we bow our heads and we pray over our food, Yeah, we're making a little bit of a spectacle, but we don't have a problem letting other people know we are thanking God for our food. Because Jesus also said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and not glorify you. Glorify your Father in heaven. So some public prayers, if you're doing it for the glory of God, nothing wrong with that. Did Jesus pray publicly? Yeah. He just said, don't pray publicly for you to get glory. It should be for the glory of God. Good question. 
Hi, as Hi. I was saying um, earlier, how do we distinguish between the prayer of faith, asking in faith, um, as it says that whatever you ask in my name, this is John 14:13. whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. Ask anything in my name, I will do it, as opposed to um, asking something yeah, presumptuous or almost like a manipulative way for our will to be done, such as if someone is sick and we pray in faith, asking that no or praying that God will heal that person, such as in um, James 5:15 when it says, "And the prayer of the faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up." Well, first of all, I believe there in James, when we have an anointing for someone that's sick, it, there, there's a whole process there, and part of that process. Is, and it says, and their sins will be forgiven. If you read on in there, that means that confession and repentance of sin is also part of any prayer for anointing and healing. And uh, if a person is sick, let's say they've got terminal cancer, and you have an anointing prayer for them, and uh, they've repented of their sins, the elders gather together, you anoint them with oil, pray for their forgiveness and their healing. What is the most important healing that every person needs. Spiritual healing that will give you a resurrection and eternal life. Everybody that is healed by Jesus will be raised up and restored. He may choose to raise them up now. He may choose to raise them up with a glorified body a little later. Uh, Now, we know that God literally heals, but the Bible doesn't teach that every prayer for sickness is answered. Because, like Paul is an example, what prophet did twice as many miracles as Elijah? Double portion of the Spirit. I knew you needed one more clue. Elisha, right? How did Elisha die? Lingering sickness. That's also in the book Prophets and Kings. Wait a second, Elijah gets a fiery chariot to heaven and Elisha dies. Will they both be in the kingdom? Yeah. So... I think we need to place every prayer for healing in God's hands and just say that it's got to be according to His will. Now, you may not... I told this story a couple days ago, but real quick, we're excited at our church at Sacramento. We had a sister that had a stroke. She was in ICU, ventilator, brain dead. Family was talking about disconnecting. We came in, we prayed for her. and, And I'll be honest with you as a pastor... Sometimes you pray for people and you think it's my duty, but you have a lot of doubts about whether or not anything's going to change. I was ashamed. She immediately got better the next day, opened her eyes, then started to talk, then started to walk, and within a week she was back in church. And they were about to disconnect life support. I just, unbelievable. That miracle. But it wasn't my faith, I'll tell you right now. It was the Lord that did it. So he does still perform those miracles. My question has to do with uh, prayer requests in church. Uh, my wife and I are part of a church plant, and so we would have, um, it's a fairly small group, and you're looking for community members to come and join. And so we had a couple of community members come one day, and our church was talking about prayer requests, you know, as we usually do, and there was a time for prayer. And then later these gentlemen were a little offended by that, saying it sounded much like a, a gossip session. And uh, it's like, oh, wow. And then we attended another church one day, and uh, the prayer request time from the front came, you know, like 10 minutes worth. 
And then the person who prayed prayed for each one of those as though God didn't hear and was off someplace while those requests were being made. And I was just wondering if there was any counsel that you could give in regard to that so that it's not a gossip session and, and, and yet, uh, you know, we can approach God appropriately. That's a great practical question. Uh, every morning when we work at Amazing Facts, we have worship and we take prayer requests. Sometimes you feel when you're listening, you know, once a week I do the worship and I pray for the, the uh, team, but uh, you almost feel like there's an obligation to repeat all the prayer requests during your prayer. But when people are gathered together in worship and they're making a prayer request, the Lord makes a note of that too. And so, you, you know, I often say, well, Lord, you've heard all these requests. So you don't always need to recite every request because God hears them. You can present them as a group. Um, and, but you're, you made a good point about sometimes prayer requests can be code for gossip. Now, I have been in churches before. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't happen very often, but I have seen it before where someone says, you know, they'll stand up and say, so-and-so's having problems in their family because so-and-so's running around with so-and-so. We need to pray with them. Pray for that family. And, and well, they really didn't need to make that all public. Uh, and sometimes it actually causes problems when you say, please pray for the so-and-so family. They're having problems. That even can be embarrassing. They may not want everyone to know that the husband and wife, you know, are having counseling or whatever. So even in your prayer request, you should be discreet if you're in public and say, there is a family in our church that needs special prayer. And, and God knows who's that, who that is. That's a good question. So, yeah, don't, don't use prayer requests. And I've heard a lot of people talking to each other and say, now this isn't gossip. I'm just telling you so you can pray for them. And... Uh, I've probably been guilty of that myself before. So, yeah, let's make sure it's a really pure prayer request and it's not just sharing information disguised, gossip disguised as a prayer request. Thank you. We are told that the uh, spiritual indication of the church is the size of the prayer meeting. And I just thought, if, we're, if we think uh, prayer is so important, why are our prayer meetings so small? Well, I'll tell you what, if you have another 9-11, you notice the prayer meeting attendance increases. Mm-hmm. Uh, I noticed at our church in Sacramento, the best attendance we've had, well, one of the best attendances, uh, was following 9-11. I mean, in our church, you know, seats like 1,200 people. It was just packed. Uh, people got scared. There was a need. There was a fear. There was an urgency. I'm not saying we all need to be afraid, but when we start getting persecuted for our faith, uh, when we really start to struggle, I think right now we're living in a Laodicean age, and so you're seeing Laodicean prayer meetings. Well, the church needs really a revival to recognize our need of God. And we might need to do what Elijah did and pray that, Lord, do whatever it takes to revive the church. If it means you send a famine, if it means you send trouble, whatever it means. Now, one of the hardest things to pray when I pray for my kids, I say, Lord, save them. And I find myself saying, Lord, protect them. But then I have to correct myself and say, Lord, if it means they need trouble to save them, send trouble. And if it means the church needs trouble for us to pray, it was right after they saw Christ crucified, you had the best prayer meetings. So uh, I think sometimes we're just in a Laodicean condition. We think we're rich and increased with good. We don't feel our urgency for forgiveness and holiness. And when we sense that again, you'll see a revival in the prayer meeting. 
Yes. Okay. Um, my question is, we come to these events, GYC, and sometimes we bring a very small portion of our youth group. And so those of us who go back, like, we want to pray with our, you know, with everyone we've left behind and share what we've brought back. But sometimes it feels so stagnant. And, like, you don't want to, like, say, oh, look at me. Like, look at the change in my life. You don't want them to be, like, insulted by it. So how do we implement what we've learned here with everyone back at home without offending them and like say, like seeming like you're bragging about exactly like because we do a lot of them like I've been to some over the years and like we go there and we get fired up and then after a while it feels like you get drained and like you, you get what I'm saying how do you take the enthusiasm from this meeting back to your home church is a really good question you know I think the best thing to do is to try to continue to model the things that you've learned in your life and when you share it with a friend or any kind of positive changes you want to see come into your church, whether it's better attendance at a prayer meeting or doing door-to-door work. I mean, if we're only knocking on doors once a year when we go to these cities, uh, I would say, you know, I've experienced some wonderful things. Share it as a personal experience you had. It's hard for a person to argue with your personal experience. I've had this personal experience. It was so wonderful. And, you know, I'd just like to have a prayer partner to pray about some of the things I've learned. Would you join me or would you join me? talk to the different department leaders in your church and say, hey, can we try to maybe take one day a month and knock on ten doors and share literature or something and just take some steps and pray as you go that you can help be part of the answer in your churches for revival? That's a good question. Yes, I don't know who's next here. Hi, um, I was just curious... um, Instead of waiting for a time of trouble or waiting for a time of problems uh, in our church, how do we encourage our church to focus on God and ask that, uh, you know, like asking for the Holy Spirit to fill us so that we can preach to to the world instead of waiting for a time? Good question. Um, I'm impressed how you do that. That's amazing. Um... I'll show you something personal. Uh, I mentioned this to a group earlier. I'm reading a new book right now that's called, it's about a hundred-year-old book, called The Deeper Experience of Famous Christians. And I'll tell you why. I'm not satisfied with what's happening in our church, Sacramento Central. we got a great church, but I'm not satisfied. I'm not satisfied... You're just going to think I'm never satisfied, aren't you? I'm not satisfied with my own personal experience. I read about when people are baptized by the Holy Spirit. You know, John Wesley was a missionary for several years before he was converted. He was a missionary. And then finally he was converted and everything changed. As with uh, Moody, as with Spurgeon, as with many others. And I know I'm never going to be satisfied until I'm full of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to be satisfied. Otherwise, you become Laodicean. You're self-deceived. And I almost think we need a sense of desperation that something's wrong, that we are not going to be able to do what God is calling us to do in reaching the world unless something extraordinary happens that we're missing right now. And I just sense in my heart that there's so much more that God wants to give us that uh, we're missing. 
And I think we need to hunger for it and thirst for it and seek for it and just be passionate and desperate to find it. So I know it sounds like a, maybe a bad message from a pastor, but I hope you're not satisfied because there's a whole lot more than what you're seeing around you, friends. There's a whole lot more when I look in the Bible that God wants His people to experience than what's really happening. And uh, called Pastor Nelson last night. I ran into him in the meetings, so I knew that uh, he was here. And I called him. My wife was off with some friends. And I said, Dwight, come on in the room. Let's pray together. And we talked about this very thing. I don't think he minds my sharing this with you. I said, Dwight, is our church going to repeat the history of other revival movements? I mean, what would Luther think of the Lutheran church today compared to back when they were dying for the principles of truth? What would Calvin think of what's happened to Presbyterians or Baptists? Or what would, what would uh, Wesley think of what's happened to the Methodist church ordaining gay ministers? You know, they turn over in their graves. Seventh-day Adventists, unless the Lord does something extraordinary, we are going through an evolution that revival movements go through and we're becoming institutionalized. And unless, something, unless we are injected with something different now that revives us, we are doomed to repeat the history of these other movements of revival. And I want to be part of that answer. And I think that we really need to be scared that we're drifting back down the same road towards the world that these other movements have gone down. And after two or three generations, the kids lose the fire of the message. You know, I'm a convert to Adventism, and so I go back to the source of what our founders read, and I get so excited about it. And then I'm married to someone who's a fourth, fifth generation Seventh-day Adventist. And um, our experiences, our perspective, I can see it's difficult in some ways for people who have grown up in the movement to feel this electric excitement about this truth. And so I think we need to really find that and not be satisfied until we rediscover what it was that made our founders go to the world in such a short time. What made the apostles be willing to die to tell others about their faith in one generation? That's what has to happen. That make sense? Again, I don't want to be negative, friends, but I think we desperately need a revival. We don't need to just ratchet it up a notch. We've got a long way to go. And only the Holy Spirit can do it. Hope that helps a little. I'm the director of a prayer ministry in a spirit in a seminary, foreign seminary. And I'm curious what some, how can I stimulate the desire or the need for prayer? And this, this is, prayer is like a spiritual activity that elevates the morale, right? And create the need for this in a place where we have so many worships, all the classes are about Bible, and where the last thing that people want to do is, you know, think about God more sometimes. That, you know, it's, it's just so much on the Bible that they want to relax and watch a movie. But how can I stimulate them in that area of prayer? You know, when I read what happened at Oxford... You're, you're in a seminary. At Oxford, back in the days of George Whitfield, I'm reading these 
their experiences right now, as I mentioned from this book, Charles Wesley, John Wesley, and a number of others. There was a great revival on that campus. They called them the Holy Club. And I think what you just mentioned there is happens in a lot of our churches. We go to our religious duties. We do Sabbath school. We do church. We have our studies. We talk about the Bible. And we feel like our, we've done our religious thing. Enough. Let's turn on a movie. And uh, I think sometimes Adventists sin more Saturday night than any other day of the week. It's like they go, Sabbath's over. Now let's have some fun. And it's like there's this mentality that uh, we've done our duty. That to me is we're studying the Bible as the letter without the Spirit. But when we start studying the Bible and going through the seminary and the colleges and the devotions with the Spirit, we're not going to want to stop. We're going to regret the times when we say, look, we've got to break it up because we have to eat. When Jesus was preaching, they'd sit all day and they'd forget to eat. They weren't looking at their clocks like, and say, oh, is Sabbath over yet? And uh, I've got kids. And all of a sudden, Nathan starts getting restless right around sundown. He starts to elbow me. He said, isn't it time for worship? And it's not because he's hyper-spiritual. He's just wanting to have the closing ceremony. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think when we just have a revival of the Spirit, we're just going to want to bask in God's presence and uh, just not want to leave it. And God's got to do it. God has to give us that. But when you experience it, when any individual experiences that real abundance of the Spirit, and you model it, people are going to want to be around you. Let me, one more thing. I was just reading about George Mueller. How many of you know who George Mueller was? If you want to know about prayer, man, read that, read that man's life. He just did the most incredible things by faith and through prayer. And... Uh, he, he, he's speaking. Several people went to hear him speak. Dwight Moody went to hear Mueller speak. Charles Spurgeon went to hear Mueller speak. He was German and Austrian and he spoke with broken English and it was very simple vocabulary and his thoughts were arranged roughly. But everyone who went to hear him speak said there was so much sincerity and spirit in what he said that you came away changed. You couldn't put your finger on anything specifically that he had said that was that profound it's just he exuded a relationship with God that impressed people that came into his presence, as did Charles Finney and others. And I think that's what's going to change our schools is as we seek personally to have that relationship. Uh, a revivalist named Gypsy Smith used to say, if you want to see a revival, here's the key. Go home, get a piece of chalk, draw a circle on the floor, kneel inside that circle. And say, Lord, I want you to start a revival within this circle. And when he gives you a revival within a circle, revival will have begun. So that's how it's going to happen on the campus. It's going to start with somebody, and it will spread to a couple of people and three. And it started like with Wesley and Whitfield and and Charles Wesley, and it began to spread. And that became part of the uh, Church of Philadelphia right there. It started on a campus. Yes? Um, What do you think about, like, when the worship leader up front on at church service like starts to pray and like lift his hands, do you think it's like show or like sincerity? That's a good question. How many of you have wondered sometimes you might feel a little awkward when you're in an Adventist church and all of a sudden see hands go up? There they go, hands. <laughs> now for me, 
I came out of charismatic church. Well, I mean, I was an atheist. But when I first became a Christian, I worshipped with charismatics who are very demonstrative in their worship. I've got to be biblically honest with you. Is there scripture for lifting up hands in worship? There is, absolutely. You can't escape it. Uh, But there's also scripture that you don't want to do anything in worship that is going to detract another person. I like to hear when people say amen when I'm preaching at the appropriate times. (laughs) I had a few people came to my church and they would just shout amen at the strangest times. I'd say, you know, pass the salt. They'd say amen. You know, it just didn't make any sense at that time. And everybody would turn and look. And it actually became distracting. And I had to write this person a little letter and said, I appreciate a good amen, but if you could space them out a little better and put them at the appropriate points. Um, you know, I, I personally, uh, I don't have a problem when a person lifts their hands if they're not trying to be distracting. Um, if, if they're doing it in worship, I, I don't encourage it just because I know that there's some things that make people stumble. And, uh, you know, you don't want to do anything that will be a distraction or make someone stumble. You don't want to be a spectacle. But biblically, there is support for lifting your hands in prayer. But keep in mind, it says lift up holy hands unto the Lord. So if you're going to lift them, make sure they're holy. So that's why I'm always afraid. I don't feel worthy. If I pray for forgiveness, do I have to ask the person for forgiveness too again? Good question. If you're asking God to forgive you, do you have to pray to a person? Maybe, and I'm assuming you mean a person that you've offended. Do you have to ask them for forgiveness? Well, there's a couple of ways I need to answer that. Let's suppose you've been around gossiping about somebody and then you're convicted. Do you go to that person and say, I just want to tell you, you need to forgive me because I've told everybody in town how rotten you are? That's probably not going to make them feel better. I think what you want to do is go to the people that you've been gossiping to and say, you know, I really have said a lot of things that were just not very flattering and not very kind. I hope you'll forgive me. I shouldn't have said those things. That wasn't kind. It wasn't Christ-like. Ask them to forgive you. Ask God to forgive you. Uh, the only time you'd want to go to another person and ask for their forgiveness is if you know and they know you've had some problem and you're, you're asking them to forgive you because you've obviously offended them. Then ask them for forgiveness. What if they tell you no? Do they have to tell you yes before God can forgive you? No, because some people are just stubborn. They're never going to tell you yes. And that, they don't become the, the gatekeeper for God forgiving you. So if you're sincere and you ask God to forgive you... Um, and you've done your best humanly to reconcile with somebody else, you do what you can do. You can have peace with God. Then it's in their court, and they have to take care of the rest of the uh, responsibility. Be nice when you ask them to forgive you. Humble yourself. You know, when you apologize, there's a way to apologize and be proud and stubborn, and there's a way to apologize and be genuine and humble. And you should invite, with a sincere apology, their forgiveness. Well, we're going to call this the end, because it is 5 o'clock. I've actually got another appointment. And um, the microphone is free. So thank you very much for your dedication. And God bless you for your patience. Why don't we have a closing prayer? Dear loving Lord, it's, it's been good to just get together and talk about this privilege of prayer we all have.
And I pray You'll help us, Lord, to have that fervency of spirit, to just be totally consumed with a desire to know You and to serve You. Pour out Your Spirit on this meeting, on every participant. Thank You again for Your goodness and love. And just bless us, Lord. Bless this meeting. And in our closing meetings, just baptize us with the Holy Spirit. Help us not be satisfied until we know that you have filled us with all that you've provided through Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.